weekender. My name is Johnny Tipton, pastor here at Redeemer. Really good to um, have you along with us. Uh, welcome. There we go. There we go. Um, great to have you here with us. Carrying on our little series here in Revelation, rooted, crowned, great that you are here. Do you know what? I forgot to come up with a question. I'm really, really sorry. Um, so why, here's the question. Can you come up with a really good question that I should have asked you before the sermon started? That's your, your challenge. Um, but it's great to have you guys in. Let me pray, and we'll come to uh, this passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonder of your world. We thank you that even more vividly this morning, it really is your Son speaking to us. These are his words. We pray that we would listen to Jesus. May your Spirit give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we were thinking about this last week. The book of Revelation is written to churches who are caught in the middle. The, the two pressures that these early churches, these early Christians were feeling. The, the pressure from the mighty Roman Empire to compromise, to water down their faith. Yes, you can worship Jesus as long as you join in all of the practices of, of Roman religion. You've got to do both. You've got to compromise. They were feeling that pressure from the Roman Empire. But then they were feeling the other pressure from Jerusalem, from the old Jewish religion, to apostatize. That is to completely give up on Jesus, to renounce Jesus as Lord, to he's not my God anymore. They were feeling that pressure as well. And as Christians, we said that, we feel the same pressures, don't we? It's easier if we compromise and just went along with what everyone else thought. Just put yourself in the office environment or in the family, when you go and see the extended family and all Christians, just put yourself in that environment, put yourself in the classroom, at school. It's just so much easier, isn't it, to compromise, to not really believe everything that Jesus calls you to believe. It just makes it easier. But then we also feel the pressure just to give up completely. Wouldn't it be much more straightforward to get through life if I didn't have to try and keep thinking, well, what does Jesus want me to do in this situation? Just, just apostatize, just give up completely. Staying in the middle, being caught in the middle, holding on to Christ, walking that path, that is the hardest path to go. And that is where we find ourselves. It's where these early Christians found themselves. And the great thing is that Jesus knows how hard it is. He knows what his churches are going through. And in this book of Revelation, the first thing he says, the first thing he communicates is this, I will come to you. Sunday by Sunday, I will come to you. That's what we saw last time. I will gather with you. And that's what we see this week as well. If you look at verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, Jesus, this is him sending letters to these different churches, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. There's lots of imagery, isn't it? The seven golden lampstands. They are the seven churches. That's what they represent. And where is Jesus? He is walking amongst his churches. Like a general inspecting his troops on the eve of battle, Jesus walks amongst his churches to inspect them, to shore up the defences, to encourage, to call back those who've gone astray. 
And, and as Jesus is walking amongst his churches, he comes to this church, Ephesus. And he looks at the church, and nothing escapes his eye. Verse 2. I know your works, says Jesus. I know your works. And I find that both terrifying and precious. Last week we had this incredible vision of Jesus. He is God above us, the Ancient of Days, enthroned above all the earth, the warrior God who has this double-edged sword. Nothing will get in his way. His eyes are blazing with justice. That's what we saw last week. God above us. <coughs> and he says, I know your works. It's terrifying, isn't it? He knows the attitude of your heart right now, what, what you're thinking. He knows the bitterness that you might be harbouring against someone else in this very room. He knows when you've compromised this week. He knows it all. I know your works. It makes you feel a bit uneasy, doesn't it? But it is also precious. I know your works. I saw how you responded with patience and grace at work and at home and the children were, were all over you and were running wild. I saw how you responded with grace. I saw how you courageously spoke about your faith. In the office, in the classroom, at home, I saw that. I saw how you forgave. I saw how you sacrificed for me. I saw how you rejoiced with those who were rejoicing, even though you were hurting in your heart. I know your works. It's precious, isn't it? There's a song I've been listening to recently by the songwriter Paul Zach, and has this line. We'll see the words on the screen. For our Lord sits up on high. But he looks down low. But he reigns forever. He's Alpha and Omega, but he looks down low. I know your works, says Jesus. Yes, it could be terrifying, but it is also precious. He sees the faithful, silent, unnoticed obedience and sacrifice of every single one of us. So Jesus, walking amongst his churches, gathering with them by his Spirit, Sunday by Sunday, he looks down low, and what does he see when he comes to this church, Ephesus, and the lamp is burning? The picture is burning, but it's not burning as brightly as it could. It's beginning to flicker. It's beginning to dim. So what's going on? What has Jesus seen in this church? What might he be seeing in our church? Well, we see two things. He sees theological purity, but he also sees loveless duty. Okay, so first thing, Jesus sees theological purity. Verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is all good stuff. First, Jesus loves that they are hard working. He loves that they keep going. He loves that they haven't grown weary as they follow him. My nan died about 15 years ago. She was uh, born back in the 1920s. And she lived through the, the Second World War and 
you know, something about that generation, it's the same kind of generation as the Queen's generation, isn't it? They were, they were copers. I'm not a coper. They were copers. They could cope. You know, I asked my nan how she was, and she said to me, well, I mustn't grumble. Can't complain. That's a kind of response. That generation lived through so much. They faced so many horrors. She lost her brother in the war where, where she was hiding uh, in a bomb shelter, directly hit by a, a, a bomb, and yet still that attitude. Mustn't grumble. Can't complain. Something I was reading in the paper this week, one of the striking things, someone knew the thing quite well, was that she never complained. Now I know today we'd say, well, that's there's something quite a bit unhealthy about that kind of attitude. It, it lacks authenticity. <coughs> Could be the case. But in Jesus' eyes, it's also deeply attractive. Someone who works hard and doesn't complain as they follow him. That's the Ephesian church. They were troopers. But whatever the world throws at them, they don't complain, they don't grumble. They work hard, church, Sunday by Sunday, prayer, day in, day out, checking up on those around them, meeting people's needs. They just kept going. Jesus says it's a beautiful thing. Love your heart, but you don't complain. But more than that, he loves their theological purity. Look what he says in verse 2. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles or teachers, but they are not, and have found them false. Jesus said, you cannot tolerate false teachers. Puts it more strongly in verse 6, doesn't he? But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans don't know much about them, but probably encouraging Christians in the early church have, have a foot in both kingdoms. Yes, follow Jesus, but yes, also make sure you are joining in with the Roman religion of the day. <coughs> the Ephesians hated those kind of practices, and Jesus loves them for it. Jesus says, Yes, to your theological purity. In the world we live in, the greatest sin is to be intolerant, isn't it? That the greatest sin is to hate. And yet Jesus is commending both of those things here. Because Jesus says no, no, the greatest sin would be to tolerate those who teach lies, especially lies about the gospel. There's a book by a social commentator, Warwick Dreher, called Live Not by Lies. And it picks up something written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was uh, in, under communist Russia back in the 60s. He fled from communist Russia. He couldn't cope anymore with the propaganda that he was being told, the lies that were coming from the state. And if you believed the lies, then life was fine. If you dared to answer that, you could end up in some terrible camp somewhere. But he had enough. He said, live not by lies. Do not accept falsehood. It's the title of that book, and, and that's a good description of the Ephesian church. Live not by lies. They refuse to accept false teaching. Lies, whether they're from Satan, lies, whether they're from the, the world around them, lies, whether they're from people within the church, they live not by lies. 
Now we're going to see in a moment that the Ephesian church has some serious issues, some really big problems, and Jesus is going to tell them to change. But whatever it is that needs to change, it is not this. It's not their pursuit of theological purity. It's not their dogged grip and hold on the truth. He doesn't want them to become less intolerant of those who teach lies. He's not going to say to them, look, you know your problem, you take doctrine too seriously. Take the truth too seriously. That's not what he's going to say. And he says, yes. To your theological purity. It is good to care about theology. It is good to care about doctrine. Do not tolerate false teaching. Hate their practices and their lives, Jesus says. Now, my instinct, and I imagine the number of the room here is similar, it is to always find the good in someone, isn't it? Or, or something. And that's not always a bad instinct to have. The kids were younger, they'd been drawing, and they'll say, Daddy, look at this amazing picture. And they want me to comment on it. Now, you know, if you're in a situation, always ask, what have you drawn? You need to hear it from them first, because you're never going to work it out yourself. So, what have you drawn? It's it's a train, Daddy. It's an amazing train. I love, and you look for something good in, in this kind of mess of, of colour and, and lines and I love the kind of squiggly steam that's kind of rising from what looks like a tree but I think it's the train. You find the good. And so when I hear another Christian or another teacher say something which goes against the teachings of Jesus, my instinct is to try and say, you know, at some level they, I think they've got a point. I understand the perspective that they're coming from. Jesus says, do not tolerate false teaching. Hate their lives. So much stronger than we would be, isn't he? Now, of course, we need to be careful with stuff like this. This is not an excuse to become all shouty and and judgy. This isn't Jesus saying, get on the internet, start trolling some people on Twitter. If there is not a theological fight going on, make sure you go out there and start one. No, but when the false teaching and the lies come into the orbit of this church, we must not tolerate them. We must not live by lies. Yes, to your theological purity, Jesus says. But all is not good in the church in Ephesus. There is something so wrong that the very existence of this church is put in doubt. Secondly, no to your loveless duty. Have a look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you, Jesus says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. You you see, for, for all of their theological purity, all their love of doctrine and truth, and being intolerant of false teachers, there's something vitally important that is missing. Love. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it'd be on the screen. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I have nothing. If I know the creeds of the church, if I know the truth, 
If I know the arguments of Augustine and Aquinas and Anselm and Athanasius, great theologians of the past, the eighteen, but have not love, I am nothing. If I can spot a heretic a mile off, but have not love, Love, you see, it's not some kind of optional extra for the Christian. Just get your doctrine right. Get your truth right. And if you can do that without being some kind of joyless, heartless robot, then that is a bonus. No, without love, we are dead Christians. Look at what Jesus says in verse 5. If you do not repent... Have love again. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Without love, there is no Christian. There is no church. We might have all the theological purity in the world, but without love, we are just a shell. Or another approach. We're like plants without water. I've mentioned before about our kind of terrible ability to, to keep houseplants at home, that they die. As soon as they come into the house, they start withering, they start dying. But, but I think lack of water is probably what kills most of them. And for a while, we'll get this lovely house done, someone will give it to us, we put it on the windowsill, and it looks incredible. Green and colourful, it looks alive. But because we forget to water them, there is no life-giving water flowing through the roots, and for a while, you can't tell, still living off past water before it entered our house. Still green, still colourful, but then slowly the petals drop and it fades and it dies. Christian without love is like a Christian without water. For a short while everything looks fine, but sooner or later we will wither and fade and die. No love, no Christian, no church. And here's the question then. What love is Jesus referring to? What is the love that they have forsaken, that they have abandoned? Now, most obvious, I think, is the love for Christ himself. And, and, and Jesus, I think, does mean that at, at some level. When they first believed in Jesus, there was a, an initial passion and joy and devotion, but now it's gone. It's faded. That, that happens, doesn't it? Our love for God, it can fade over time. But I wonder if Jesus has got a different kind of love in mind. Not just love for him and for the Father, but love for others. See, when Paul, the, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, writes to the church in Ephesus, in the book of Ephesians, he mentions their love. Listen to what he says, Ephesians 1 verse 15 for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all God's people. What were the Ephesians known for? Their love. Their love and affection for others. Maybe that is what Jesus had in mind. At the beginning, when the Ephesians first came to faith, then when they first started gathering as a church, they loved whoever walked through the door. That they loved those who persecuted them. They loved the poor and the weak and the needy. And their love 
It shines so brightly. This, this candle, this light on a lampstand, so brightly that Paul, hundreds of miles away, heard about it. But over time, that love for others has faded. And you can imagine how it happened, can't you? This church that is under such theological attack, false teachers within, the pressure of Rome without, they had to defend the truth. And they did it well. Yes, to theological purity. They knew how to hold on to the gospel, how to bunker down and defend themselves. But they forgot over time how to hold out the gospel. They forgot how to go on the offensive and win their enemies over by loving them into the kingdom. They stopped caring about winning the person as long as they won the argument. They stopped caring about whether people believed the truth as long as they held the truth. They stopped loving their neighbour. Their ministry, their preaching, their teaching, it was just loveless duty. Let me tell you about John Peace. He was a, a notorious thief and murderer back in the 19th century. He was eventually caught in 1879 and sentenced to be hanged. And if you let out to the gallows, what happened in that time is that you'd have a, someone from a vicar or a minister or someone would walk alongside you and would read verses of scripture to you, telling you the gospel, urging you to repent before it's too late, warning of hell but promising the joy of heaven just before this person's about to face their death. But for this chapter, as he walked alongside Charlie Peace, it was just another day, another prison. He was disinterested. Yes, he was speaking truth, but he didn't really care whether Charlie Peace believed it or not. And seeing how disinterested the chaplain was, Charlie Peace turns to him and said, be on the screen, if I believed what you and the Church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on my hands and knees, and think it worthwhile just to save one soul from an eternal hell. Don't just want to be right about the doctrine of hell. I want to have that kind of heart that would crawl over broken glass if that's what it took to save just one soul. Do you see the difference between loveless duty that holds on to the gospel and a heart for the lost? And for all those around that holds out that very same gospel, whatever the cost. Who cares about theological accuracy, about doctrinal purity, if we stop loving those around us? This I have against you, Jesus says. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Is that Redeemer? I don't know. We've only been around three years. I think we're a wonderful church in all sorts of ways. It's a danger though, isn't it? We are so strong on our theology and our doctrine and Jesus said, brilliant. It's a danger, isn't it, that, that we could forget to love those around us. Now, if we've lost that love, if we've lost that heart for Christ and for others, how do you recapture it? Because there is a way. 
Jesus tells us, verse 5, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. How can we get our hearts burning again with love for Christ and love for others? But we need to remember, first of all, consider how far you have fallen. Or better, remember what you once were, Jesus says. Remember. And I love that Jesus starts here. Because he's saying, what you are now, this loveless, joyless church, that isn't you, that isn't the church. I've seen what your heart can be like. I've seen how you once burned with love. Remember when you loved to open your home to others. Remember when you weren't filled with anger towards those who were different to you, but filled with compassion. Remember when you prayed for your friends and your family, and when you longed for them to hear and believe the gospel. That's you. That's what your heart can be like, because it's been that way before. If we've lost love, how do we recapture it? First, we remember what we were before. And then we repent, Jesus says. Oh, Jesus, forgive me for my heartlessness. Forgive me that I keep people at a distance. Forgive me that I've stopped caring about those who don't know Christ. Remember and repent, Jesus says. Yes to theological purity, but no to loveless duty. And, and, and the stakes are high in this. If you do not repent, says Jesus, if you continue with loveless hearts, I will come to you, verse 5, and remove your lampstand from its place. He will shut the church down. If our hearts grow cold, there will be no Redeemer Winchester at some point. The Lord will remove the lampstand. But what is the point of a lampstand if it is no longer shining? Just take it away. We were walking around Winchester yesterday and just very striking to see the number of churches that are now flats and homes and other things. don't know what all the reasons were they were shut down, but it is possible, isn't it? The Lord Jesus will close down churches that no longer burn and brighten with this love. But more positively, look at the hope that Jesus holds out to us. Verse 7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus is talking about being victorious. And it wasn't just the false teachers that he had in mind. He victorious, overcome that false teaching. It was their own hearts, isn't it? Cold, loveless hearts. That's the biggest enemy they need to gain victory over. Battleground isn't just, it's not just out there debating theology. It's in here. Our own love of our hearts. Will we be victorious over our own cold-heartedness? Will our hearts burn with love for Christ and love for the lost? So, so just as we close, there is a beautiful hint here in verse 7 as to how we can reignite our hearts with love again. In, in verse 7, Jesus promises us that if we overcome, if we are victorious, we will eat from the tree of life, 
in the paradise of God. Picking up that, that imagery right from the very beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden, when God walked amongst his people, just like Jesus walks amongst the churches, and the tree of life that you can eat from and never die, but live in joyful, everlasting life with God himself. Jesus promises that to those who overcome. But interestingly, the word for tree that Jesus uses here is not the normal word. It, instead, it's the same word that other writers in the New Testament use to talk about the cross of Jesus. Two trees. The tree of life and the tree of Jesus' death. You see, we're going to stand before that tree of life. We're going to overcome our hard-hearted, cold-heartedness we must first stand before the tree of the cross. If we're going to enjoy everlasting, eternal, joy-filled life with Christ, we must first experience his saving love for us. As he died in our place to forgive us our sins and pay the penalty of them. And you know, the more that we stand before the tree of the cross, the more we recount and re-experience his saving love for us, then the greater our hearts will burn with love for him and love for the other for others and for the world. There's a poet called Mark Malcolm Geitz has this wonderful line in one of his poems about the cross. He writes this beyond the screen. Though we betray him, that's Jesus, though we betray him, though it is the night, he meets us here and loves us into life. If you feel your heart is going cold, if you feel as though you'll never overcome your loveless heart, if you feel as if the, the, the light is dying in your heart, then let the Lord Jesus love you back into light again. Stand before the tree of the cross. So what we're going to do in a moment is we share communion together. We're going to remember his burning love for us. And then that burning love for you, love you back into light. So as Jesus comes amongst us, he says yes to your doctrinal purity, but no to your loveless duty. So Redeemer Winchester, as we start life as this church, we're only three years in, we're a baby church, what do we want to be known for? What do we want people to say about this church? Redeemer Winchester, they care about their theology, they care about their doctrine. Or Redeemer Winchester, they care about people. Why would you ever choose between them? Jesus says yes to both. Care about theology and care about people. As one pastor put it, we need to have a theological backbone that is made of steel and hearts that burn with love. There's our vision.